welcome to Unorthodoxy. My name is Duncan Rayburn and this is episode 3 in my series on the book of Exodus. We started this series by looking at the, the kind of general theme of slavery with this idea that it is really easy to fall into traps, into bad ways of living. Then we moved on to the idea that Moses' birth is a symbol of virtue. Of course, it's a symbol of various other things as well, which I've discussed. But the idea that it's a symbol of virtue indicates that there is a promise in virtue of how slavery is going to be overcome, how bad traps and patterns of living are going to be overcome. I've also mentioned that Moses was basically set up to have an identity crisis right from the start within this very strange context of slavery within which he found himself. And this has some relevance in this episode too. And I'm going to look at it, among other things, within the guiding idea of rivalrous brothers. I've already said that the central identity crisis for Moses' life is the crisis of virtue, which is really the question of how to be fully human given the tensions that we're living in. And with a strong dose of mimetic theory, we might conclude that our best shot at figuring out how to be fully human is to figure out who to follow, because who we follow is going to shape our desires. I'm about to launch into a very brief shout out to mimetic theory, which I've done a series on way back in episodes 20 to 24. So you can go there for a recap of, um, of mimetic theory there. The gist of it is that desire is mostly copied. And this is exactly what lands Moses in a space of crisis. He is raised as one of Israel's people, but also as an Egyptian. He is given, in effect, two sets of desires to follow, and which to follow is not exactly obvious to him. He likes his life of luxury, we can assume, but he also feels that it's not working. It's not turning him into the best version of himself. This tension is most pronounced in the fact that he stands in a way between his two brothers. He has an Egyptian brother who will become the Pharaoh, and he has a Hebrew brother too, Aaron. He stands, so to speak, between a tyrant and a priest. And of course, symbolically speaking, we all stand between a tyrant and a priest. Our true self is always struggling between our inner critic who wants to kill us, basically, and a better inner critic who wants us to be truly heroic and good. It is really no good to be caught in the middle of two such very different brothers. Eventually, you're going to have to pick a side, especially because you have to at some point decide who you are and who you want to be. We don't get any real insight into what Moses' actual childhood looked like from the book of Exodus, but we meet him next as a grown man in a bit of trouble. And in some sense, as I kind of hinted in the previous episode, he is still growing. He, he, he's a grown man who hasn't really grown up, uh, mostly because of this identity crisis. We imagine this bit of, from this bit of trouble that we find him in that he was not exactly a man completely settled in himself. One day, he sees an Egyptian fighting with one of the Hebrew slaves. The external struggle absolutely perfectly matches Moses' internal struggle. Astonishingly, Moses chooses to side with the Hebrew slave. He kills the Egyptian, his brother-in-arms as it were, and thus enacts or reenacts the drama between Cain and Abel described in Genesis 4. 
There are a few ways you can read this event, beginning with the most obvious way, um, which is the negative way. Moses kills a guy, which is inexcusable. In a way, he simply echoes the rivalry of Cain against Abel. He becomes in the process liable to face the hellfire and brimstone of his own Egyptian people. The main theme of this movie, if it were a movie, would be revenge, uh, you know, with a nod to Quentin Tarantino. In killing this Egyptian, Moses relives in a way the worst of human nature, that tendency to want to eradicate being, to denigrate existence itself. And that is obviously not good. Ambrose of Milan, for instance, argues that Moses would never have killed the Egyptian if he had not first had his soul corrupted by Egypt. This is a powerful lesson on its own. It suggests the obvious link between how we live and the outcome of that way of living. If a person is living badly, taking a step in what is obviously the wrong direction, they should not expect that the outcome is going to be favorable. And yet, sadly, this often happens. I've seen friends take on self-destruction as if it is an oasis. But, well, the oasis is often a mirage. Still, surprisingly, the negative way of reading Moses' act of murder is not the one taken up in either the Jewish or the Christian traditions as the main way of reading this story. Augustine, for instance, recognizes just how bad murder is, but also suggests that his intervening act his saving of this uh, Hebrew slave, is in some ways justified. It's a kind of involuntary manslaughter on behalf of someone else. The Egyptian man was, after all, beating up the Hebrew slave. Moses, Augustine says, was already called to act. Some rabbis looked at this um, same thing and saw it as a clear foreshadowing of the eventual exodus of the people of Israel. By association, Moses kills his Egyptian brother and thus saves his Hebrew brother. In the same way, Moses is going to be instrumental in defeating Egypt so that the Hebrew people will be freed. Moses was always called, I mean this story indicates this, he was always called to be a saviour figure, which is echoed in another story that we'll get to later on in this episode. Just as Moses had been drawn out of the turbulent waters, so he was going to draw Israel out of a turbulent time and a turbulent nation. When Moses kills the Egyptian, it's as if his own private rage has helped him to make a decision about who he is. And I think it's a very interesting thing that emotion often, especially those ones that are repressed or sort of denied, those emotions often have a way of signaling to us that we need to take a different route or pick a a, a specific route. In the contest between nature and nurture, nature in a manner of speaking, has won. Moses is, despite his excellently elitist Egyptian upbringing, a Hebrew among Hebrews. Gregory of Nyssa takes this idea a step further and suggests that Moses, as a symbol of virtue still, is thus taking a strong stance against vice, which is now symbolized by the now-dead Egyptian. Gregory, in full frontal allegorical mode, writes this, The fight of the Egyptian against the Hebrew is like the fight of idolatry against true religion, of licentiousness against self-control, of injustice against righteousness, of arrogance against humility, and of everything against what is perceived by its opposite. I like that Gregory talks about perceiving here, because this is ultimately what needs to change. 
not just what we perceive, but how we perceive. What keeps us trapped, perhaps more than anything else, is how we see things, how we see the world. At the start of his own journey, Moses is, in a way, seeing the world in two diametrically opposed ways, which he hasn't figured yet how to reconcile, because they're, in some sense, irreconcilable. The Egyptian way of vice is the one, and the Hebrew way of virtue is the other. And so he needs to make a choice. And so, as Gregory points out, Moses sides with virtue and kills virtue's adversary. Obviously, this is not an injunction to go out and kill bad people. We're in the realm of allegory, or even parable here, in the spiritual meaning of the text, not the literal. We can read it as an invitation to do some inner work and figure out how to kill virtue's adversary within us, which is where it most, where it most commonly dwells, which is the same as ending those things that are working against us living out our full potential. Maybe what needs to be killed is a stupid way of thinking about something. Maybe it's a habit that just isn't helping. Maybe you're in the pit of despair and some substance is your go-to escape hatch. Well, maybe you're an addict to something else, social media, a bad friendship or a bad job or simply, simply a bad way of doing your current job or anything that doesn't ask you to be better than you currently are. The true battle is also in archetypal terms, between good and evil within us. It's no good to go out and point out how others are wrong when you haven't even begun to figure out all the ways that you need to clean up your own act. How, by the way, does Moses kill that Egyptian? It's an interesting question. Does he whip out a machete Jason Voorhees Friday the 13th style? Well, that's unlikely. In the movie Prince of Egypt, Moses tosses the offending Egyptian from a dizzy height, and it's the fall that kills him, which is a nice metaphor in a way. Of course, the text that we read in Exodus doesn't tell us anything. Clement of Alexandria suggests, though, that there was a mystical tradition in his own day that offered something of an answer, really peculiar and interesting answer. The idea in this tradition was that Moses eliminated the Egyptian simply by speaking. Imagine someone could do that by just delivering a podcast. That would be so interesting. Anyway, this is a really wonderfully suggestive idea, even though it is completely implausible. It calls um, back to this idea that God creates by speaking, as well as calling forward to a time when Moses has completely lost his faith in his ability to communicate. The idea is that communication is hugely powerful which is obvious, but also horrendously easy to forget or to overlook. In the book of James, chapter 3, in the New Testament, we find this exceptionally powerful discussion on the power of words. Words may be small, but they are enormous forces in the world. For instance, as James points out, words are like the rudder of a ship, small but still able to steer something huge into a completely new direction. Language is one of the major themes of the Bible, and it's worth paying attention to as you're reading, uh, just to look out for how language is used and referred to. Um, you can almost do a kind of meta-textual analysis of how language is used and um, thought of in biblical terms. Death and life are found in speech, for instance. You can speak blessing over someone or reality, or you can curse them or it. Words can and will run and rule your life. 
and they can also ruin your life too if you're not careful. You can use words in a way that will rule or ruin the life or lives of others. This at least is one of the morals of this mystical interpretation of the story of Moses' murdering that Egyptian. This mystical interpretation is particularly fascinating when taken in the light of the fact that Moses hides the Egyptian in the sand, which is what happens. His words become a kind of cover-up of the truth instead of a way to broadcast the truth. The corpse of that Egyptian is a symbol of profound things to come in a way, but um, Moses doesn't want to face up to the truth of the corpse. The corpse is saying, we need to start burying Egypt. There's, there's a problem with this, this way of living that we need to get rid of. In the process of, you know, forgetting to face up to the corpse, Moses forgets something very obvious. There was someone who witnessed the whole thing, namely the guy whose life he'd just saved. And witnesses, um, I'm sure you've noticed, tend to get the word out. You can try to bury the truth under a basket or in the sand, but the light is going to escape one way or another. For obvious reasons, we find Moses to be somewhat nervous after this act of murder. If we get back to the more obvious aspects of the text, we find a man deeply disturbed by his own violence. I think if any human being does this, there must be an enormous amount of shock to discover uh, the the alarm of, of getting rid of a life. Of course, Moses had never thought of himself as the kind of guy who could get so angry that he would end up taking someone out of this mortal coil. But, well, now he knew something about himself. He knew that he had a tyrant living inside himself too. Maybe he had had good intentions in a way. He'd sided with justice over and against injustice. But good intentions aside, he'd ended up doing the wrong thing. This is to say that Moses' identity crisis uh, is far from resolved at this point in the story. A short while later, after his foray into homicide, Moses sees two of the Hebrews fighting, two of his Hebrew brothers now. Moses is still dressed up at this point in the story like an Egyptian, and he asks the one Hebrew why he is striking his companion. This is amazing. Uh, Moses doesn't take on the way of speaking of a slave driver, which is quite profound. He doesn't tell the two slaves to stop their nonsense, which he would have been perfectly within his rights as a prince of Egypt to do. Rather, he asks a question, and it's a question of the kind that would invite participation and dialogue. Only this is not how the two Hebrews receive the question, probably because they aren't seeing a Hebrew dressed up as an Egyptian They're just seeing an Egyptian. The response of the Hebrews is defensive because they don't comprehend the deeper reality of their current situation. Before them, whether they like it or not, or know it or not, is their deliverer. It's one of the great lessons of the book of Exodus that all of us find it difficult to recognize the source of our deliverance. The answer to your problem might be staring you in the face, but because you have been so possessed by the status quo of your own slavery, you'll see it as an extension to the problem rather than as its solution. Moses was always, in some sense, destined to be a mediator. And that's another thing that we find in this story when Moses intervenes in the the conflict of these two Hebrews. He tries to redeem his own reenactment of the Cain and Abel narrative by rescuing 
others from the same reenactment of that same narrative. In the in this scene, Moses shows us that the only cure for violent reciprocity, that, that whole imbalanced equation of an eye for a life, the only solution to it is to mediate an alternate desire. Moses tries to save the situation by interrupting the negative flow of copied desires. When we get trapped in copying bad desires, we find our lives to be comparable to what is known as an ant mill. An ant mill is a phenomenon in which a group of army ants, which are blind, get separated from the main foraging party of ants, and in the process, they get cut off from the pheromone track of the other ants, and then start to follow each other in a continuously rotating circle. Of course, this is all part of the self-organizing structure of ant colonies. Ants get to where they're going by following each other. But when something goes wrong, a new pheromone track is formed that doesn't allow any form of escape. The ants will keep on following each other around in a circle and will eventually die from sheer exhaustion. The only way for the ant mill to be disrupted is if something enters the circle from the outside, forcing the terminal ants to find a new way of organizing their behavior. Sometimes we need interruptions. Moses interrupts the bickering slaves, not because interruptions are comfortable, but because maybe the way we're living isn't optimal for our well-being. And maybe that's one way of looking at interruptions is to ask the question a little bit along the lines of, of Jung's idea of synchronicity. When something surprising happens that um, wakes us up to an experience, to pay attention to what it might be saying to us, even if it is in some way accidental. In a way, Moses provides this kind of interruption to the two Hebrews caught in argument. Instead of welcoming his intrusion, though, one of the Hebrews looks at Moses and says, Who made the prince and judge over us? The question is asked ironically, of course, but it gets to a profound truth. Moses is both already and potentially the prince and judge. The idea of a prince represents the ideal, the thing we should be aiming at. The idea of a judge represents the fact that the ideal is always a judge because it's what calls us out when we're on the wrong track. If we want to be better than we really are or currently are, we need both a prince and a judge, um, an ideal that calls us to a higher life and then helps us to see the ways in which we might be on the wrong track. Moses' response to being called out by this Hebrew slave is to say, Surely this thing is known. In other words, his crime, his killing of the Egyptian, isn't a secret. Which we know is kind of obvious. The Hebrew must have told people, the Hebrew that was rescued. As in Eden, the knowledge of good and evil exposes Moses' vulnerability. The real problem actually is not that his crime has been found out. As a prince of Egypt, he would have probably been able to get away with murder. What made him really vulnerable, though, was what the murder meant. It meant that his allegiance was not entirely with Egypt. So Moses does the only thing that makes sense to him. He runs away. What is he running away from? The obvious answer is himself. He takes a step away from both Egypt and from the Hebrew slaves, which allows him to avoid dealing with the conflict within himself. He doesn't want to face up to the fact that he has two brothers, each 
from a different nation, each representing a completely different way of being. But his calling as prince and judge doesn't escape him. As the old proverb says, wherever you go, there you are. Moses can try to outrun himself or his shadow, but he's going to find the truth of who he is, whether he likes it or not, just as we all are. Having fled, Moses soon confronts a group of shepherds who are pestering some young women who are busy trying to get water for their father Jethro's flocks. Here we have shepherds who are actively opposing genuinely good shepherd-like behavior. Sheep need water. So if you're a shepherd who stops sheep from getting water, you are by definition a bad shepherd. <laughs> Moses fights the bad shepherds off and ends up watering the flock, very much like a good shepherd. That symbol of the good shepherd is an important one in the biblical canon. It's an idea that gets applied to various good kings, to God even. Think of Psalm 23, and then to Jesus. In ancient Mesopotamia, the king of any nation was regarded as both a messenger of the gods and as a shepherd of the people. And Moses seems at this point in the story to already be living up to that kind of ideal. The fact that through much of the rest of the story, Moses carries a shepherd's staff is a really powerful symbol of this. Ridley Scott, very interestingly enough, replaces the shepherd's staff with a sword in the movie Exodus, Gods and Kings, which is a profound indication of how to miss a vital symbol. An image of violence, perhaps the so-called violence of religion, takes precedence in Scott's mind over the peaceful but highly active posture of the good shepherd. Jethro's daughters, having been rescued, <laughs> tell their father, I'm going to quote, that an Egyptian delivered us from out of the hands of the shepherds. So right here, they cast Moses as a deliverer, and Jethro, the Midianite priest, thinks that this is a good sign. He gives his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage, which is an amazing symbol of trust. Moses, at this point in the story, has nothing in the way of wealth, which is in some ways an indication that he is a bad choice. You know, if you want to marry off your daughter, don't give her off to a guy who has no money or no status or no nation in this case. But the priest of Midian sees a virtuous man and deems the virtue of Moses to be the greatest wealth that any man could want for his daughter. The second chapter of Exodus finishes off by telling us that the Pharaoh of Egypt, the one who did not know Joseph, had died. Death in the Bible is never just the end. It always signifies possibility. And in the space of possibility, it becomes evident that God looked upon the children of Israel and God had respect unto them. No one in those days would have had respect unto slave people, but this God does. And so, in looking behind the scenes, we find that goodness itself is attentive to being, even degraded and downtrodden being. And goodness is always trying to find a way to restore a degraded and downtrodden being to itself and to goodness itself. We all sense a redemptive pull in our own being. We want more than what we have, to, to be better than who we are right now, to find grace in a world of ungrace, to be free from the various forms of slavery that confront us every day. 
And it is in this that we stand a chance of hearing the voice of divinity. That, as it happens, is what happens next in the Exodus story. Moses has, in a sense, become ready to grow up. He is not yet grown up, but he is ready to receive some sort of profound epiphany, some theophany, really. It's one of the most beautiful and perplexing and enriching accounts of an encounter with God described in the biblical canon. And that's what we're going to be looking at in the next episode. Thank you very much for listening in, everyone. Uh, If you want to support me and this podcast, you can have a look at patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. Or you can, you know, buy my book if you want. It's on Amazon or, you know, various places that sell books. And in the meantime, I sincerely hope that you all find yourselves ready to confront the ways that you might be stuck in your own antimals between your own two different brothers, but also ready to embrace possibility and also open to seeing things in your world that are interruptions and princes and judges and good shepherds. Until next time, cheers, everyone. Mm -hmm.